0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, using the placebo effect as therapy.
1: Improving the detection of younger people at risk of bowel cancer. And what may happen if the hospital systems in New South Wales and Victoria are overwhelmed when we open up at 70 and 80% and the expected surge in cases occurs? While we're told the system will probably cope, it may do so only because of tough decisions by doctors about who gets into intensive care units and who doesn't. In the Canadian province of Alberta, where there's been an uncontrolled COVID surge recently and immense pressure on ICU beds, they have an ICU triage system. See if you like the idea of it. Under phase one, people with dementia, bad burns, who've had a large stroke or in a coma may not be given an ICU bed. It gets tighter from there because partly we're talking about people without COVID who um, might get in or not. Older people might be excluded, especially if they have other conditions. And only kids who have major medical needs would get in. And then there might be limits on the number of days on a ventilator depending on the likelihood of survival. In other words, switching off the ventilator at two weeks so someone else can be treated. Australian states and territories are mostly far from transparent about what their COVID-ICU triage guidelines are, if indeed they have any at all, which could mean exposing doctors and facilities to legal action, not to mention upset, confusion and mistrust from patients and families. There have been calls for some years for decision-making guidelines to be created for emergencies such as pandemics, and they should be developed in consultation with the community. Dr. Will Cairns is one of those who's been writing and talking about this for a long time. Will is a palliative care physician based in Townsville. Dr. Eliana Close is a lawyer and law lecturer at Queensland University of Technology and has been looking at the legal implications. And Dr. Peter Saul is an intensive care physician based in Newcastle who's been long interested in this kind of decision-making under extremists. Welcome to you all. Good, Good afternoon, Thank you, Norman. Norman. Will, what's a palliative care physician doing in this area when it's really about acute medicine with desperately ill people from COVID?
2: Well, something I've been interested in for many years since I was a medical student and there was a big underground train crash in London and I attached myself to the uh, triage doctor in the emergency department because I was working there at the time. And I realised that that disaster was not actually a disaster for the health system because the health system managed quite well. Uh, And wasn't overwhelmed, partly because the patients came very slowly from uh, their extraction from underground. Um, But then later, a few years later, when I was had relocated to Australia in about 1920, I went to a lecture from an Eastern. 1920, uh, 1980. Sorry, not that old. No. Um, um, an intensivist from southern Africa who said uh, that their admission criteria uh, in their hospital was male breadwinners and if you weren't improving within 48 hours, uh, you were discharged and taken off ventilator and so on. And their reasons were that the demand was far in excess of the supply and the consequences of the death of a breadwinner were uh, spread across the community, whereas um, children in particular had very little impact so there was really a social basis for that decision and then in 2006 the hospital here published its disaster plan and I realized there was actually no discussion of palliative care for patients who had non-survivable injuries and then following on from that Um, So this is disaster
1: management you're talking about rather than pandemic? Disaster management,
2: yeah. But then I thought, well, one of the disasters is a pandemic. And so we also need to consider how we would make those kinds of decisions. And that palliative care would have a role in that because even though patients weren't going to survive a disaster, including a pandemic, um, they still needed to be cared for. They needed to have their symptoms managed and distress addressed and all those kinds of things. So I think there's a natural link between the two. And in the UK and the US, during the COVID pandemic, palliative care has been very important in the care of patients, particularly in conversations about death and dying and decision-making and so on, as well as symptom management.
1: Um, And I think in Australia, that's led to people being left in residential aged care and not necessarily being moved to a hospital if they weren't going to have active treatment
2: in the hospital. Yes. Yes. And that's a form of triage in itself, because we, if you decide that you're not going to transfer people to hospitals or into intensive care facilities, you're making those kinds of decisions. And certainly in the UK, that was one of the mechanisms they used to avoid being overwhelmed was to make their ICU criteria more rigorous. and um, So they didn't do trial of ventilation, because I think sometimes, even though you may not be optimistic about the outcome in a non-disaster or not in a pandemic, then you do uh, try people in intensive care with the recognition that you may not be successful.
1: Eliana, what's the situation in Australia with um, such COVID triage guidelines? You've had a look at this.
3: Yeah, we've had a look at this. I did a study with Will and other colleagues at QUT and at USQ that looked specifically at what triage protocols or guidelines were in place. Um, And we reviewed each state health department website and found that while there are many ethical guidelines and operational guidance documents um, which might provide guidance about what to do when there's a surge, we didn't locate any triage tools. So these are the actual documents that would provide criteria about who's in and who's out if the system becomes overwhelmed. Um, in New South Wales, there was more of a framework and, and more detail around what the surge um, planning would look like, and in that document, they referenced a the triage tool, but we couldn't actually locate the tool itself. Um, so that obviously raised concerns for us, because as a lawyer, um, in terms of public accountability, transparency is everything.
1: So, did you find any state that published um, what, they, what the what the decision making criteria were for into getting into ICU under when when you were an extremist and overloaded?
3: No, I mean some of them had high level principles, um, maximizing benefits. Uh, Queensland Health actually had a very extensive. Guidance document that flagged what ethical principles should take precedence. Um, That was out for a number of months last year, but then the government pulled it down. I think because there were concerns about the legality of some of the recommendations. Um, But if you look at the documents that we found and compare them to ones such as the Alberta triage protocol, um, they're just vastly different documents.
1: And one of the philosophical principles that the or ethical principles that uses utilitarian utilitarianism, which is you're trying to save the most lives, which is which the, the way the army works, for example, in the battlefield. It's, you move on to find somebody who you know, needs to go out on the chopper who's actually going to survive.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the medical model is that that utilitarian principle should underlie... Um, these triage tools. We want to maximize the most lives, saving the most lives. Um, But even that is debated. So ethicists could say, well, no, that isn't ethical. We should just do this on a first come first serve basis. Um, So the ethical principles underlying the documents really can be debated. And they have been, and certainly um, being Canadian originally, I have followed the the discourse in Canada and there's just been so much um, higher degree of attention paid to the notion of triage, probably because they've been faring worse than we have in the pandemic. And you say that um, there these are- these kinds there, of things have been debated. And
1: there are legal implications of this?
3: There are legal implications. So our, myself, again, with other colleagues um, and, and others internationally have raised the prospect that not having a triage protocol in place opens up those frontline healthcare workers to the potential for a variety of legal challenges and of course the the trouble with assessing um the likelihood of that or the magnitude of that is is really difficult because this is an unprecedented event but you could have legal challenges in negligence in criminal law in public law or discrimination um and and that creates massive stress for healthcare workers um Some countries have addressed the prospect of legal liability within um, enacting indemnity laws, um, but Australia hasn't looked at that so far. So the good thing about having a triage protocol in place is that it provides the best level of protection absent those immunity or indemnity laws because... Um, clinicians can point to that protocol as the basis for their decision when they're making these tough decisions, which are literally tragic choices. They're life and death decisions where people would die that wouldn't otherwise in normal circumstances.
1: Now, Peter, so you spent your life as an intensive care physician. Um, This is a nightmare coming true, possibly here.
4: Absolutely. Uh, Look, I just wanted to pick up on what Eliana was saying about the stress on healthcare workers in that setting. I think one in three American healthcare workers has considered quitting this year. And part of it's the stress of making the decision and part of it's the collapse in public support for the clinicians making the decision. In America, they've become extremely skeptical. And I strongly agree with Eliana that we mustn't allow that to happen here. We have to have a system where people feel it's transparent and fair. Where I'm gonna deviate is I'm gonna say, that's not a tool. Um, So so what I'm going to do is imagine two o'clock in the morning in an ED and half a dozen people with COVID are in there. What do you want? Um, And my answer to that is you want a process. And I think it's faith in the process that we want from the general public. So I think step one, and this is picking up on what Will said, you need to declare an internal emergency in the hospital, an internal disaster. Step two is you want a triage team. You don't want this to be all on the shoulders of some poor sucker Who's been left holding this baby? At the night registrar on in intensive care. Yeah, you know it, Norman. The midnight registrar on in intensive care, and, and yeah, I don't think you want to send to the public the idea that this is a the computer says no situation that we're then in. Uh, I, I think that a tool is just that; it's just a tool. Uh, an electric drill is a tool, but it won't build a house by itself. So I, I think that what we have to really make transparent and get support for. Is the entire process by which there's a whole of hospital response to what's then an internal disaster. But, but I hear this, you know, I
1: hear some hospitals saying, oh, well, we're going to give it to a nurse who's going to do a clinical frailty score on somebody. So in other words, how frail is this person? And I said, well, has that been validated? Um, you know, what's the process? And we're talking about something that's going to happen in a month's time. This is not something that we've got three years to develop.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, when you pick up on the clinical frailty scoring systems, you realise almost certainly that that's been very controversial. So <laughs> when you put things into this tool, not everybody's that happy. So the the best indicator of likely to die from COVID is your age. But if you put age in, then that's discriminatory. The, the second best indicator is frailty. But if you put the clinical frail scale in, they had to withdraw that in the UK because there was an outcry from frail people who said that they were being discriminated against. So I think that the the practicality of developing a tool that ticks all the boxes from an ethical viewpoint is very difficult. It's also difficult to get one that's really accurate. So I put myself and my own data into six tools that I could find online, and I got mortality rates ranging from 1.7% to 9.4%. So, uh, so they're, all, they're unreliable in predicting. Yeah, so I think the reliability of the tool is going to shift. And so, as we get better treatments, it will be shift further.
1: So before we run out of time, what what would a, what, what what's this what should this look like? And we haven't got we've only got four weeks in New South Wales and maybe six weeks in Victoria to get our act together on this. Will
2: um, I think the first thing is to engage with the community about it. I know have we got time uh, to
1: do that in four weeks?
2: Well, I think the sooner we start, the better. I think, first of all, you need to um, roll out widespread advanced care planning because advanced care planning allows people to sort themselves out whether they actually want to be engaged in this process. And you can actually rule out a lot of people they rule themselves out or maybe uh, as part of advanced care planning is also a discussion with your doctor about your health. is. So there are some people who... um, may after discussion with their doctor rule themselves out or their doctors may say actually you're not a candidate for ICU and ICU doctors know better than anyone about the morbidity and mortality just from being in ICU and we had a dinner in February last year with friends and all of us over 70 said we'd rather defer to younger people um, for places in ICU Um, so you would find a significant number of people would I think do that kind of thing. but also the community conversations do happen and people are willing to talk about it. And I think a lot of the obstacle is reluctance to actually ask the community what they think. And in those places where they have, they have participated in discussions. And I think you just have to fast track it, it to make up your own rules.
3: Look, I think, you know, given the time pressures, there are many things we could do. We could adapt other tools from other jurisdictions like Canada. I know that for the H1N1 pandemic, New South Wales looked heavily to Ontario to develop some of their tools. And I I guess we shouldn't say tool in a flippant way. This isn't a mechanical formula, but it could involve a triage committee that makes the decision to take the pressure off individual clinicians. So that's more like the process that
1: Peter's talking about. That
3: Peter's talking about. But we need to convene multidisciplinary task forces to develop, but importantly, release these documents. Because if we don't release them, we can't have scrutiny And as you say, we don't have time for extensive public consultation on every aspect of this. But simply releasing a document is a form of consultation because then people can scrutinize it, see if there's problems with it, see if there's community concerns, but also see if they comply with local laws. Because often these tools are released and lawyers stick their hands up and say, look, this clearly violates these laws that are in place. So I think there is still things that we can do here. We just need the political courage to release these these um, documents.
1: You're assuming that there are documents to release?
3: Well, I have, I've have had discussions with um, people in New South Wales that suggested perhaps they were being worked on. So, I mean, people are aware that this is needed. The extent of work that's been done um, is unknown.
4: Peter, are you aware of what's
1: going on in New South Wales?
4: Look, I am, and, 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 and Eliana's telling herself a bit short here. She's also worked with the Australia and New Zealand Intensive Care Society on what I think is an excellent document and Queensland Health has an excellent document as well. I mean, they're only like matters of principle, but I think they could go out there to the public as is.
1: So what does your process look
4: like, Peter? Well, as I say, I think it's, it's a whole of hospital response, not an ICU ED response. It's an internal disaster. I think the decision to triage people should be made by the same team for consistency's sake and not rely on the night registrar to do that. And I think that, the, that one of the really essential components is enormous amounts of support for the poor souls who have to do this and for the poor souls who have to go through the other end of it as the patients.
1: Will, if this doesn't happen, what will occur?
2: Our decisions will be made anyway because triage essentially happens when you don't have enough places for the people who might benefit. And so you end up having to make a decision on some grounds or other. And so I think that without Proceeding with some kind of process, it'll just happen in a um, way that is quite idiosyncratic. I think the key thing about triage is that it is discriminating. You're just trying to work out of what grounds you're going to choose between people who wish to be treated and might get a benefit from it. Um, that's not a very cheerful end to it. But I think if community feels that it's something that has been worked through with them and they they partly own the process. Um, then that makes it easier. But it'll, it's never going to be an easy thing.
1: Without a field there for the lawyers, Eliana, please forgive me. Thank you very much <laughs> to the three of you. To Will Cairns, palliative care physician in Townsville. Eliana Close, a lawyer and lecturer at Queensland University of Technology. And Peter Saul, an intensive care physician at, based in Newcastle. You're with RN's Health Report. Well, there's a national bowel cancer screening program. People with strong family histories of colorectal cancer are usually diverted to more active colonoscopy surveillance. What they're looking for, the doctors are, is a precancerous polyp, which is what most bowel cancers evolve from. Research using Swedish data has found that perhaps the familial risk should be applied to families where someone has been discovered to have just polyps could be a way of identifying high-risk individuals before they get into trouble, especially the growing group of young people who, while they don't qualify for the National Screening Programme, are being diagnosed with later-stage colorectal cancer, needing major surgery and chemo, with often poor outcomes. So knowing who in your family has had polyps may be vital information in prevention, according to new research. Dr. Minyang Song of the Harvard School of Public Health took data from Swedish registries of people with bowel cancer and also registries of those with polyps and was able to link them by their familial relationship compared to the general population.
5: So when we compare the cases versus controls, we found that those who had a family history of polyps were more likely to be cases. So in other words, the cases had a higher prevalence of family history of polyps than the controls. Among the cases, the prevalence of having a family history of polyps is around 8%, whereas in controls it's around 6%. And when we adjust for other potential like confounding factors, such as family history of colorectal cancer, the risk elevation, is around 40% comparing individuals with a family history of polyps to those without a family history or polyps.
1: Now, it's, it's fine, Min Yang, to say, well, a 40% increased risk. That's relative to a background risk. But what people want to know is what's my risk as an individual? And you did look at that, and it's called absolute risk. Give me a sense of that according to age or type of polyp or however you did it, because it, it does vary according to age and type of polyp.
5: Yes, it does. In our study, we did quantify the absolute risk of colorectal cancer according to uh, family history of polyps. For example, the absolute risk of colon cancer in individuals aged 60 to 64 years, the risk is 94 per one hundred seven for men, for those with a uh, family history of polyps, and among those without a uh, family history of polyps, is uh, 68. Per 100,000.
1: So your risk goes down about 30 percent if you have yes. a pa- family history. Yeah, industry. that's
5: consistent with the relative estimates.
1: If I flip the the statistic and say, well, hypothetically, I've had polyps found on my colonoscopy, is the link strong enough to say my first degree relatives need to have colonoscopy?
5: At this stage, I think the evidence is still quite limited. I mean, our study is. One of the few studies that have addressed this question, we believe that more studies are needed before we can really recommend earlier colonoscopy screening among individuals with a family history of polyps.
1: So just to summarize then, what you found is that if you've got colorectal cancer, there's a much higher chance than the general population that you've had a first degree relative with colorectal polyps the risk going the other way is not entirely clear. But nonetheless, if you take all polyps, you tend to get aggregated into people with with a link with um, colorectal cancer. What's the takeaway at this stage of knowledge?
5: It's individuals with a family history of polyps uh, likely to have a higher risk of developing colorectal cancer, especially if they have multiple relatives with polyps diagnosed at a pretty younger age the risk can be very substantial. Our findings suggest that early screening for colloquial cancer may be considered for these relatives of patients with polyps. However, as I mentioned earlier, given the limitations of the study, we believe further evidence is needed before we can really Changes their clinical recommendations or the clinical guidelines.
1: One of the mysteries at the moment internationally, this happens in Australia and it's certainly happening in the United States, is that mm-hmm. more and more younger people are turning up, particularly young men, with colorectal cancer. And it's not easily explained. Does this research go any way to elucidate that?
5: Yes, in this study we did quantify the association of family history of polyps with early onset colorectal cancer among individuals younger than 50 years old. And what we found was that the association was much stronger for early onset colorectal cancer.
1: Thank you very much indeed for joining us.
5: Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. Dr. Song, who's in the Departments of Clinical Epidemiology and Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health in Boston.
0: When it comes to medical terms that have made their way into popular culture one of the most recognisable would have to be the placebo effect. This idea that a sham treatment can be beneficial simply because the patient believes that the treatment will work. So if placebos can produce results, why not use them in clinical care? It's a question experts have been considering in recent years, but a commentary piece in the Medical Journal of Australia argues that the power of placebos is overblown. One of the authors of the piece is Professor Chris Ma from the University of Sydney, who joins us now. Hi, Chris. Hello. So your commentary is arguing against placebos in clinical care, but they have been associated with good outcomes in the past, haven't they? Like why shouldn't they be considered as part of the mix?
6: I think the the argument is that people are overstating the case for placebos. When we've studied the size of the treatment effect, they're not powerful as advocates are su- suggesting. And the other thing is Probably of, of the dozen health conditions that have been studied for, it's only really two conditions where there's any evidence that they have some small effect. So so portraying them as some sort of powerful panacea is, I think, uh, overstudying the case.
0: How much is it actually happening that doctors are out there prescribing placebos on purpose?
6: Well, if you look in terms of the major medical journals, there's been commentaries in the BMJ and also the New England Journal of Medicine. A survey of Australian GPs found that 40% of GPs have prescribed a placebo in their career.
0: 40%? That's huge. So the conditions, you mentioned a handful of conditions there, things like pain, nausea, irritable bowel syndrome, lower back pain specifically, depression, obesity, things that are complex often. Is that why maybe they they are being prescribed in those
6: areas? Um, I think the reason they're being prescribed is because people are reading some of these overhyped, poor, poorly conducted studies and believing them. And so really, we need to be a little bit more savvy when we're reading research articles. And, and I guess journals have a responsibility to, to, I guess, guard that some of the information that's been presented is actually accurate. The other thing I'd say is that some of the conditions you mentioned, we know that um, placebos don't work for. So things such as smoking cessation, dementia, depression, obesity, hypertension. In the Cochrane Review, those were the conditions where placebos didn't have an effect.
0: Are these treatments that are these conditions where there are treatments, though? uh, You know, if there's no treatment, maybe there is an argument to uh, prescribe something that might have an effect.
6: Yeah, I guess I'd take you back a step because for most of the conditions where the placebos are being used, there are real treatments which work better. So if you look at most clinical trials and you're comparing an active treatment to a placebo, for most health conditions, there's an active treatment that works better. And I think, really, in terms of The role of the clinician is to help the patient decide between active treatments rather than offer them a placebo treatment. And I guess if there was some new health condition where we have absolutely no treatments, then I guess maybe you could consider using a placebo, but it would be on fairly uncertain grounds. And there are some ethical issues in doing that.
0: Yeah, can we talk a bit about the ethics of it? Because you've either got, you know, you think the effect is that people think that it's going to work and they're being misled. But you mentioned in your article that there's even suggestions that people get some sort of placebo effect even when they know they're not getting an active treatment.
6: Yeah, so that's a more modern version of placebo. They talk about open placebos where they actually disclose to the patient that they're getting a placebo. The thing about those studies is we've got a lot of flaws to them. So the one that most springs to mind is one that suggested that if you took an open label placebo you told the patients it was a placebo they took it for three weeks for chronic back pain that it had long-term effects for five years but when you look at the study they actually threw away the control group and so it was no longer a trial and i guess you'd have to wonder why did they throw away the comparison group you know And, and perhaps if they had the comparison group and the placebo group you wouldn't have seen that benefit at five years it's a funny way to do a study
0: What are patients' attitudes? I think there's a pretty clear argument that doctors shouldn't be prescribing things that don't have a clear effect, but do patients
6: ask for these sorts of things? I'm not sure if patients do ask for them, but I guess the the best answer for that would be that you can actually buy on the internet open-label placebo pills, and there's a couple of different brands of them, so presumably if there's a product out there. So this is for people to self-medicate with their own placebo. There's a couple of different brands. There's also a form for children, which is a chewable form. And they're actually quite expensive. So the one you can get from the Australian website is $150 to about 45 capsules, which is quite a lot of money, $3 a capsule for, I guess, something that hasn't got much in it.
0: What about the other, we've mentioned another phenomenon on this, uh, on this show before, the nocebo effect where people are expecting a bad outcome. What are your thoughts on that?
6: I suspect if you go and look at the science um, carefully, you'll find much the same as for placebo. It's really hard to believe that you can have um, you know, powerful placebo effects and powerful placebo effects. When we've gone looking for placebo, they turn out to be at best modest, and I think the same thing would be the, the same case would apply for placebo effects if you look carefully. Um, yeah, I think for both of those things, we've overstated the benefits and we've probably overstated the harms.
0: Well, just briefly then, what are the harms? If we're talking about a treatment that's inert, what are the harms of prescribing this as opposed to the the treatment itself?
6: I think it's really the opportunity cost. You know, if um, people are being given placebos, they miss out on the opportunity of receiving a real treatment. And I guess the other thing that concerns me a little bit is people being encouraged to self-medicate with open-label placebos that they buy on the internet. I'd much prefer that we have um, people seeing a, a clinician to get some advice about a health condition, I much prefer so we have a situation where the, the clinician and the patient are choosing between active treatments rather than pretend treatments.
0: Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us. Thank you. Christopher Maher is a professor in the Sydney School of Public Health and director of the Institute for Muscular Skeletal Health at the University of Sydney.
1: I just love all that placebo stuff. It's just so fascinating. I've done many stories on it over the years. You know, and it's it is about expectation. It's what you're led to believe, um, and. I just can't help thinking it is a bit more powerful Um, research done in his area, in Chris's area, in musculoskeletal disease, which was done by um, Rochelle Buchbinder in Melbourne, looked at um, arthroscopy. And, and placebo, and you know, and, and the placebo effect on in arthroscopy was actually pretty powerful. And there's a fascinating study about acupuncture, which is where oh, with the
0: retractable needles.
1: Well, I... well, 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 I don't know about that study. Well, tell me about that study, and then I'll tell you about mine. You, you tell me yours, and I'll show you I... mine. <laughs>
0: now i'm gonna now i'm realizing that i don't know the thing that i've got this memory of something with retractable needles where they basically used sleight of hand and they used yeah like close-up magic to make people believe that they were being acupunctured but they weren't
1: yeah well i don't know what the results were in that study the i mean with complementary medicine unfortunately the the bigger the studies and the more and better design the less likely they are to actually show an effect which goes along with what chris is saying because you minimize the placebo effect with a large well well designed study Um, but this study is actually of um of of acupuncture where people got needles and they got needles according to the meridians according to classic chinese medicine and then they got needles in random areas of their body and Uh both got an effect so that's Probably not the placebo effect, but what it is, is the effect of the needle in the skin. Um, So in in other words, simulating that. So what probably is a placebo is the whole shtick about the meridians, if that story is true, whereas sticking a needle in somebody does actually help your pain a bit.
0: But as you say, with things like pain and and those sorts of complex things, the answer is obvious is often not just a single pill that you can take. So it's really hard to extract the mental side of things or the psychological side of things from the treatment itself.
1: Yeah, and there was a whole area around statins where if you were told you to expect muscle pain with statins, cholesterol lowering drugs, you you got muscle pain, and um, so the nocebo effect was. Considered quite strong with uh, with statins. Anyway, interesting topic, (laughs) which is taking us away from our mailbag.
0: Well, that's right. And the mailbag is chockers this week, where we're going to have a mailbag free week again next week. So we're going to get through a few today. And there's quite a few people who've written in about Sarah sedge's report last week about borderline personality disorder. And if
1: you haven't heard it, you must get it. You must download the podcast. It was a fantastic program with a huge response.
0: It was massive. And Barbara was one of the people that wrote in saying, talking about underdiagnosed and stigmatised illnesses is so important. The medical system and those who are a part of it really need to up their game. Most people, and Barbara knows, with chronic illness, mental and physical, usually need to do their own research and advocate for themselves to get anywhere with diagnosis and treatment. Well, that's actually a theme we're going to pick up on next week on the gender gap in healthcare.
1: Yes. And it is a general problem where you are thrust on your own devices to look after yourself and if you are not well equipped to do that, are well resourced, or have time in your life, or if you're a grandparent with you know, three grandkids with a single parent, that you're helping to look after the grandkids. It really does become a problem. And also knowing where to get reliable information, apart from, of course, the health support.
0: Well, of course. And Kim has also written in saying, if dialectical behaviour therapy programs and DBT-trained psychologists were more widely available, many people would be able to get the help they need. Thank you for this episode shedding light on borderline personality disorder, trying to take away the stigma that surrounds it. People with BPD are very misunderstood and I get why they don't disclose their condition. People are afraid of what they don't understand. Mm.
1: And those are only just two examples of the many comments that have come in about that program.
0: Uh, Well, now it's time for some questions, Norman. And Mitchell has written in saying that they are a research student with ADHD and the medication that Mitchell's on massively reduces their appetite. So they find it easiest to just make a smoothie with heaps of veggies, nuts, fruit, and this is basically all they eat in a day. (laughs) Mitchell says, it kind of feels like cheating. Suddenly I have this insanely healthy diet from sipping a smoothie all day and I don't even have to eat. Is there any downside... I know that you'd love this question, Norman. Is there any downside to relying so heavily on smoothies for my nutritional intake? It's not like it gets filtered. It's all just blended. Is it as nutritious in smoothie form?
1: Well, probably. And um, so the one thing you've got to watch with smoothies when you're not taking uh, a a stimulant, which is what's causing the problem with appetite, the ADHD, is that if you've got a normal diet and you take smoothies, particularly with fruit, um, you are taking in quite a lot of calories. So it's good if you're not eating much else and you're taking a smoothie, then you're getting your calories from your smoothie. But if if your smoothie is added on to a normal diet, you're taking in a lot of calories because it's hard to eat the amount of fruit that you can get in a smoothie. It's like juices. So you've just got to be a bit careful on that. And actually, for some vegetables, um, processing the vegetables, like chopping them finely or cooking them, we've spoken about this before, and I mentioned it in my new book, um, is actually more healthy um, because it, it, you create a, a more of a chemical reaction and you get more release of antioxidants. So it's possible that some element of processing like this uh, helps to generate new nutrients in the in the in the diet. But you've got to be careful with smoothies if um, uh, you're taking it in excess of a normal diet.
0: Now I just feel like a smoothie.
1: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, Robin. Uh, He sent in a question for you, Tegan. My partner and I have recently become pregnant for the first time. Reading up on the subject, there appears to be a lot of low-value or even dangerous care being provided. However, most of the sources seem to be American and or a decade or two old. How are we currently doing in Australia with things like rates of caesarean sections, dedicated birthing centres, access to home birth and skin-to-skin contact immediately after birth?
0: Oh, well, congratulations, Robin and their partner. I guess the first thing to say is that our medical system is pretty different in Australia to the US. So it's even though we're Western nations speak English and whatnot, we have a a much better public health system here. So according to a report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare based on data from 2019, a little over one in three mothers have caesarean births. Um, It's more common in preemie babies, older mums, mums who are overweight or obese. And the WHO says the ideal rate of caesareans is 10 to 15%. So that's, you know, more than that, but it's less than other nations. Vast majority of births are in hospitals, but it's worth noting that hospitals often have birth centres within them. So I don't know how you you extract that, 97% of those births in hospitals. And about one in five babies are admitted to special care nursery or neonatal intensive care units. And again, that's more likely for if the mum is quite young or quite old and you're much more likely if mum or bub is Indigenous. So, And and then the other thing is skin-to-skin contact. I couldn't find stats on that, but I know that it's in a lot of hospitals policies, but you also hear stories about this not being carried out. So it's hard to know sort of how that's happening across Australia. But the thing that your question, Robin, made me remember was when I was Pregnant and getting ready to have my babies, and I felt like I was getting all of these things that I needed to do to optimize my pregnancy and optimize my baby's health. And it felt like I was getting messages that the medical system was going to somehow cheat me out of this. And I was really pleasantly surprised how much the system in my area, at least, really aligned with what I wanted for me and my babies. So, even though there are definitely ways that we can do better in Australia, and there are absolutely specific groups where we could do a whole lot better, for example, Indigenous people people living in rural and remote areas, it's good to have the perspective of we have it really good in Australia. Our maternal mortality rate is six in 100,000 lives births. In the US, it's 19. And globally, it's 211. And we also have much better uh, rates of, uh, low rates of still stillbirth and neonatal death. So my advice, not medical advice, but my advice to you as a parent, figure out what's important to you. Talk to your partner about it. Talk to your caregivers about it. And all the best. And
1: one thing I'll add to that is that there is very good research to show that the, the safety of the whole process is vastly improved by having somebody with you side by side. So you know, you're going to be with your partner and, um, and having somebody there by the bedside makes a huge difference to the whole process and the safety of the process of uh, being in labour and having a baby. And that's done with a randomised trial in Dublin where they're very used to uh, multiple births.
0: Ah. Uh, and Kanina has an, a question, Norman, saying, I have an autoimmune disorder as well as severe allergies, particularly to long peptides and proteins. And Kanina's specialist has indicated that they're not a candidate for any vaccine currently available, and there's one coming that is not yet approved that might work. If this vaccine doesn't arrive for a long time, is Canina to just stay in a bubble forever? Because they understand that those people who are double vaccinated can still carry and transmit this virus.
1: I presume your specialist is talking about the Novavax vaccine, which which is a um, the spike protein going directly into the body. But whether or not that qualifies you in terms of uh, the sort of allergies that you have, um, which could be difficult. The so and I'm, I really can't make any comment about that. What is coming down the pike for people with immune? deficiencies or immunocompromised who might not be able to get the vaccines or get a good result from the vaccine or an antibody response is that some pharmaceutical companies are producing monoclonal antibodies. Now, in your case, if you are allergic to long peptides and proteins, they may be a problem for you too. But AstraZeneca, for example, has developed a twin monoclonal antibodies. So it's two monoclonal antibodies in the one preparation. It's an injection and lasts for about a year. So this is almost like a prevention and treatment in one for people who've got immune deficiency. And um, so in other words, it provides the antibodies that you would have otherwise got from a vaccine. So that's one possibility, but... um, you you may well have problems with that as well if you're um, allergic to long peptides and proteins.
0: And the other thing that this just reminds me of is that just the reason why so many of us need to be vaccinated because there are always going to be certain members of the population that can't be vaccinated for whatever reason and we have to protect them by protecting ourselves even though it is possible for people who've been vaccinated to carry and transmit the virus. It's so much less likely than if they're not vaccinated at all.
1: Yep, and just listen to Monday's Coronacast for that, uh, for certain detail on that.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for in the Health Report mailbag for this week. Keep sending your questions in by emailing healthreport at abc.net.au.
1: And just tell us a little bit about next week's show.
0: Next week's show, Sarah Sedgi and I are going to be delving into the gender gap, the problematic gender gap in healthcare, why it seems to be that women are sometimes not represented in clinical studies and what that means for the gap in actual healthcare itself. So definitely come and stay tuned for that one. Be prepared to get a bit angry, but we're going to have some solutions presented as well.
1: Look forward to it. See you then.
0: See you then.
3: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.